You're listening to the Bass Lessons Melbourne podcast, episode one, Yannick Wisdala. Hey everybody, I'm Craig here from Bass Lessons Melbourne and today, very privileged to have next to me, Mr Yannick Wisdala. So first off, Yannick. Hey man. Thanks very much. Hey, thanks for, for having me. Man. Pleasure. To do this. Pleasure. It's been uh, it's been great so far. Yeah. Um, what is it that brings you to Melbourne? <laughs> Something quite unmusic related, um, and kind of a kind of a change of pace in terms of lifestyle and career a little bit for a year. Um, I'm traveling with uh, with the Bryan brothers, uh, two tennis players, um, greatest doubles team of all time. Uh, we're traveling uh, the entire year together, um, doing a lot of things. They're fantastic musicians as well as obviously world-class tennis players, so we have a great connection as I'm a, a massive tennis yeah. fan. Um, and we're doing a lot of filming, uh, making a feature-length documentary about their, about their lives and about their last year on the tour. So you're possibly. kind of in charge of that? I'm kind of in charge of that, yeah. I don't know how that happened quite, but uh, I am kind of in charge of that, doing a lot of at least archiving uh, footage, you know, that maybe this will be their last year on tour, maybe not, but if it is, it'd be nice to have that kind of um, catalogued yeah, yeah. and archived and pick up all the all the fun things that, that happen throughout a year on the ATP tour. Um, and I'm playing a lot of music while I'm gone as well, you know, and we were talking in the car on the way over about how it initially seemed like I might be taking a year off from music, mm. concentrating on tennis and, and this whole other life, uh, but ironically it's going to end up, I'm going to play music in more cities in one year that's my own music than I probably ever have done before. Yeah. Which is because we travel now for forty nine weeks to a lot of different cities around the world. Yeah, so um, so that's going to be mostly for your new album. Yeah, um, American Elm, uh, which which we just released, um, is a, my first ever attempt. I will say because I don't know how successful it's been yet. I'm very proud of it. I think it's been successful, but I'll leave that for the listeners to decide. It's my first attempt at, at playing completely solo. Uh, no pre-designed loops or templates or backing tracks or anything, no other musicians, yeah. um, just me and the loop pedal, a little delay and a few effects and, and tracking the whole thing live. How long did that take you? Uh, we did the whole thing in about six hours. Um, you know, we picked a day. Um, okay. I did it at my good friend uh, 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 James's house over in LA and he has a very nice studio and we recorded it, set up in his front room. Yeah. And tied all the cables into the studio and uh, and 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 hit record basically. And cool. Six hours later, we had a record. Um, you know. Awesome. So is it kind of really only now that you've felt comfortable with doing that, or is it someone you've always had in the back burner doing like a solo bass thing? Yeah, I don't think it was a necessarily level of comfort that I wasn't feeling. It was a it was a feeling of um, you know I, I got. Uh, Show of Hands, you know, the Victor Wooten solo, which is, he has a couple of little guests on there and different things that aren't completely solo based, but I consider that to be a solo bass record yeah. and one that really impacted me greatly in my career and one that I, if that had been a, a vinyl LP, I would have worn it out. I would have yeah. gone through three or four copies of it by now. Um, so uh, I just really, it was a question of not having anything original to say myself as a solo bass player yeah, fair you know I didn't feel that until recently until I had some melodic ideas that I wanted and some music some material that I'd written that really suits my style of playing mm -hmm. it was really important to match those two things up and I don't think I think they'd been kind of missing and finally they kind of got together and melody and chordal and, and all these kind of elements that I do play yeah um, that are part of my sound kind of all came together at the right time yeah cool so um when I found out that you were, you were going to come over and do this, I sent out some emails and text messages to okay. the bass players going, what would you want to 
Oh, oh wow. don't ask. Okay. Yannick. Um, and kind of the general consensus was, how are you so productive? What, like, what is it that kind of keeps you getting up at quarter to five? Yeah, quarter to in five. In the morning. <laughs> and, you know, you, I mean, you've got uh, two albums coming out um, and a new book and a new DVD. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and. So, uh, yeah. how, how um, do you juggle it all? Um, I don't sleep very much. And that's not it meant to be a joke. Some people think that's funny, but I don't sleep that much. You know, I, I try and get six hours a night, which leaves 18 hours to be doing stuff. Yeah. Which when, I think if you really broke down your day, if, if you're one of the people asking yourself how I do that or how you, maybe you don't do that yet, mm. if you broke down your day and were really honest about how you spent your time, you'd find there was a lot more time than you feel. Exactly. You know, so I think it's, a, it's, a, it's an awareness of time. It's awareness of um, perhaps not understanding that you can actually do it. I think everyone can do it. It's just finding that, finding that sweet spot of being able to be motivated for it. Yeah. I'm highly motivated uh, because I love what I do, yeah. both on the tennis side and on the music side. There's like two yeah. really kind of crazy careers going on at the moment. Um, but I'm highly motivated on both sides of the fence. And um, so you know, and it's really just, it's like I had, I was talking with, I did an interview recently with the bass player Wayne Jones. Okay. And we are talking about, it's really just time spent. Yeah. There's, I mean, with a lot of my students, I say there's no shortcuts. Yeah, there are no shortcuts. You know? And most uh, most clinics I do and, and, and things like that, people are looking for like, hey, what's the one thing? What's that one thing that made you go, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Well, going blah, 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 and failing at it many times made yeah. me go blah, 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 successfully eventually. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it is, yeah, it's just time spent. And I've always had a passion for that. I've always had great motivation to spend a lot of time with the instrument. Yeah, yeah. You know? I think one of the first times you came into my sphere yeah. <laughs> in the bass world was with your podcast. Oh, yeah. Um, okay. That was quite a while ago. Yeah, um, that was. And so since then, obviously, it's evolved into videobasslessons.tv. Yeah, absolutely. And you've got an app and you've got backing tracks. Oh, there are so many facets to it. I mean, it's so like... So can you maybe talk about the evolution from being, um, you know, musical director for, was it Vivi Brown? Oh, yeah. Well, that that came, yeah, okay. And well, then, you know, to, to being the Yannick Empire. So <laughs> the you know, mini, what, what was that? Cause the mini empire. Well, yeah, so I was, I was on the road with Vivi for a year as her musical director and kind of came home at the end of it and realized that I wasn't going to be able to go and do that again. Like my brain and my body was just not going to be able to take that kind right. of a beating. Um, for, I mean, on, on some levels it was a great experience and I learned a lot from it and, and we, we had some great fun and she was an amazing singer. But on another uh, level, there were many things I didn't like about it and being gone from home for so long. Mm. And um, so then it was like, okay, I have to try, I want to stay being a musician. I don't want to be a, a lawyer or a dentist or, or anything else. I want to be a musician. I want to stay in the music business. Um, I have to find another way. And that's how I, I kind of, the podcast had come in like 07. And I got off the road with Vivi Brown in the end of 2010. Oh, okay. So the podcast had been around. It wasn't really a regular thing that I was doing, but when I did it, it got a lot of attention and a lot of people downloaded yeah. it. And it was a cool thing. It was really fun to do. It was really nice to hear the feedback to motivate yeah, it's me to do more. interesting podcasts have had a resurgence lately, I think. Yeah. In the last couple of years. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. With Serial. Did you get the Serial yeah. podcast? Like all these crazy podcasts. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I listened to a Penn and Teller podcast, a Pendulate podcast. It's, it was a really great podcast. So that at the time was like, a, podcasts were a thing, then, mm. really a thing, a new thing. And it, it resonated with people and I would sit there and do like a 30 minute kind of radio show thing and talk a little bit about play a little explain what I was doing like a mini lesson yeah. and maybe play some tracks of you know that I was listening to 
So I wanted to try and monetize that. And I had a lot of followers, like thousands and thousands of followers on the podcast. I thought, okay, maybe I'll upgrade it to video as well as audio. And I'll charge a I remember that. dollar. Okay, there you go. So, and I'll charge a dollar a download or something like that. Because yeah. you can charge for premium podcasts. And the first day I did it, 100 people got it. I was like, I made 100 bucks. Wow. And the next day, 80 people did it. And the next day, and it just dwindled. And after two weeks, maybe three people were buying it a day. I was like, oh, I can't survive on $3 a day. Um, and then my good friend Bob Reynolds was uh, w- was building a subscription website for saxophone lessons, yep. and sat and sat me down and taught me WordPress in two days. And from that was in the end of 2010. And from there, I just started building it and studying really hard, studying marketing and studying you know other entrepreneurs and the online business model and the forced continuity and subscription, all this stuff. And the key to the success of all that was being honest while I did it. There were so many mistakes in the beginning mm. and so many things I really failed miserably at in terms of the infrastructure and designing and building because I didn't know anything about it. And people were really cool and they stuck with me and I appreciate that very much. And they uh, and, and it turned into what it is now. It's been a you know been five, over five years of doing that. Yeah. And it's, it's, uh, it's still amazing to me. It's, it's a huge job. It has become a huge job. Yeah, now, I'm, I can now I'm filming much higher quality production and there's editing. And, there's, and then there's the expectation as soon as you step up. The, yeah, I guess there's that. I've never thought about expectation, to be honest. Yeah, sorry. No, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> I, I mean, of course, I've thought about it, but it's never bothered me. Yeah, okay. You know what I mean? It's, I've always thought, no, I'm just going to do what I do. And if people like it, that's awesome. Yeah. If they don't, there's plenty of other people. I out mean, really, there. you could probably record something on your phone and you know, millions of people would watch Well, it. the ironic thing is that some of those lo-fi videos I do when I have an idea and I'm in Melbourne or something and yep. I'm in the hotel room and I stick the camera up and I don't even have a base, some of those end up being the most popular videos on the site mm. because they are so honest and so off the cuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I don't think I could build an entire business model on low-quality, no. yeah. crappy audio videos, but the, the odd one can be really successful it's in the midst of... definitely content. That's absolutely, yeah. So it's, yeah. Cool. Um... And talking a little bit earlier about your album, you've got another album coming out with Peter Erskine? Well, that's Peter's record. That's Peter's not mine. Like, yeah, Dr. Um, and that's something we tracked, I want to say September of 2015, and it came out a few days ago, uh, maybe last week at this point. Um, and, oh, it's something I'm so proud to be a part of, and it's really... I think it's the first time where I've been on an album with a, an absolute hero of mine and been... A really a featured part of it. Yeah. It felt like I'm kind of an equal part of the group right. and, and I was able to contribute what I contributed and w- was kind of a creative equal in the process, which was really nice. Awesome. You know, with someone yeah. that legendary that I've been listening to since I was a yeah. kid and to be given that free reign of being able to do my thing, being called to be me. Yeah. I think that was the most important thing was that Peter called me because he wanted me to be on a record. He didn't just need a bass player, he needed a specific thing. So that was yeah. beautiful. And we get to go to Japan in a few weeks and play that music, cool. you know, with, with those great guys, with John Beasley and John, and, uh, and Bob Shepard. So something I'm very proud awesome, of. Awesome, man. Yeah. Looking forward to checking out. So obviously, you're a Federa artist. Yes. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your journey to get to Federa? Um, yeah, I mean, I remember... I vividly remember going in there for the first time one winter shortly after I moved to New York, maybe 2000, 2001, something like that, and we started talking about me playing one of their basses. Uh, I wasn't going to be an endorsee at the time. What were you playing at the time? At the time, I was playing... Wow, that's a really... Oh, Wall basses. W-A-L. Remember those guys? Yeah. Yeah. So I had two of those. Four? Five. Right. Five strings, as far as I remember. I had a Is four that strings. Because of Lawrence. Yeah, that was the big influence. Lawrence Cottle, you know, yeah. my mentor, and the, the one of the main reasons I started playing the bass. And he, 
Yeah, and he hooked me up with them, and I got I got kind of an artist deal with. Them. I still had to pay for it, but I got kind of an artist deal with them early on. So I had two beautiful bases. Do you still have those? I don't. Marcus Miller has one of them. He bought my fretless, and I don't know where the fretted one went. I mean, if anyone is watching this and knows where they are, yeah. I would legitimately like to buy those bases back. After. Yeah. I, Marcus might have sold it on because this was like a long time ago yeah. that he bought it. But he sold a big part of his collection at what, one of the shops in New York, I think. Oh, he did. Yeah. So maybe that the, the fretless. I mean, mainly the fretted one is the one I'm looking for. Yeah, that yeah. was really special. That was the first base I really did a lot of damage with, and I would love to have it back. Um, so yeah, and so then when I went to Federa, and we were talking about making a base and they showed me some options and I tried a bunch of different things and they took me on a tour around the factory, look at all the woods and all this crazy stuff. I was like, wow, this is pretty amazing. Um, and I paid for my first base. You know, I wasn't an indoor C. Um, we did a kind of a little bit of an artist deal thing and it was great, you know, and yeah. I, I got it and it was, yeah, it was a life-changing experience. Yeah. And then eventually, you know, 10 years later, we, we, we worked on this base a little bit to be a signature model. And um, yeah, it's yeah, there's nothing like it. You know, it's like getting into a Maserati or something, or yeah. Bugatti. Well, I remember you, I remember reading about um, your was it a Mustang experience? You're in a studio. Oh, uh, and you music up. master, music Fender master. music master. Yeah, even smaller and lower key than a than a Mustang. Only one single pickup in right. the center, and it was. Um, Jim O'Rourke's bass from Sonic Youth. Oh, okay. And, like, and, and he so left it, it in been, a... It had been well used. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was beat up, but it was so beautiful. I put a fresh set of uh, tape-wound flats on there. Yep. Nylon tape-wound flats and, and did this record of Bob Reynolds' album That's with John Mayer and Aaron Parks and Eric Hahn, all these guys, and it sounded amazing. And then I wanted to buy it from the studio and they wouldn't sell it to me. And I had, for some reason, I had a bunch of cash in my pocket. I took like $1,000 and I was like, look, I've got cash. I'd never have cash ever. Here's $1,000. Can you take that as a deposit? I'll go and get more. And they went, no, it actually belongs to someone and they left it in the studio. Jim O'Rourke left it in the studio seven years prior. Okay. And they moved to Japan. Right. And nobody could get in touch with him. So for two days, there were like phone calls and emails were going around. I was, I called Juan Alderete to say, hey, do you know Jim? And he's like, I know Jim, I'll reach out to him. And we didn't connect. And uh, I found one in, I think, Ludlow Guitars, it's called, or some guitar, old guitar shop on, and I found the exact same color and within 200 digits on the serial number as Jim's. And I went down wow. there, 700 bucks, boom, and I got it. And it was amazing. But yeah, I played Jim's bass on that record and it sounds incredible and it was a life-changing experience. Put this in the case, didn't play it. So there are moments like that when you take what was a $250 bass 40 years ago and it's perfect for the thing. Yeah. You know, it's not... It's not Ferrari, but it was perfect for that music yeah. experience. And it's something I still use, yeah. and it's but a it's short like, scale. You know, you're not going to drive a Ferrari round town for like four yeah, hours. Yeah, or, 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 or cross country, you know <laughs> yeah, what I mean? Yeah, like, cross country is a better example. Exactly, you know, you're not going to do that. So it was, it was ideal for the situation. Um, but this is a whole different thing. The range I have on this, to be expressive, is... Seconds and that's to none. E to C? Uh, this is E to C. Yeah, absolutely. So the chordal stuff becomes a little more... A little clearer. Yeah. I probably need the intonation setting up on this. And that's a shorter scale. It's 33, yeah. But 26 frets. With... With 26 frets, yeah, I love it. And it, don't get me started, so when I get on the... 
I can get some serious range out of it. Cats like yeah, what? even the cat went, oh, no, not again, man. <laughs> Beautiful. And then I had an XLR put in, so I got a balanced DI inside the base. Oh, put what? that on the camera, yeah. So that was a little custom thing so we no did for the signature. Yeah, I mean, sure, I like playing through a Neve channel strip if I had my choice. Yeah. But uh, this is a great thing. And you know, you show up on sometimes on those things where the amp blows up or something happens and you can go straight into the PA and use That's a monitor. Cool, yeah. So just a nice little addition. And then I switched to the Aguilar pickups and uh, the DCBs, I think they're called, mm. and that was amazing. That brought up even more range in the in the Everybody seems to be, even F-based, they're using Aguilar pickups. Yeah, there. just amazing. It was, a, it was a really good change. And then I put a, a hip shot on the, on the E string. So I do have a ton of range in the instrument. It's yeah. almost like a six string range, but without the need to have fingers that are three inches longer. Yeah. You know? <laughs> So can you remember when you first got the call to play with like a major artist? Obviously you say you played Peter Raskin. Yeah. And so what was that like and how do you prepare for something like that? And how has that changed from then until now? Well, well the biggest change is I don't get called anymore. <laughs> or very rarely, you know. I've, um, I've kind of made a conscious decision to be as little a sideman as possible and as much of a of a band leader as I possibly can. Okay. So the the phone calls kind of are not as much as they were. Sure. Um, and, and they used to be more for pop and R&B and commercial music, basically, mm -hmm. definitely as a sideman. Um, I do remember... I guess, I guess it's a question of, like, you say being called for a big gig or by a big artist, like... Some of the things I got called for early on were pretty big, but maybe I didn't consider them to be pretty big because they weren't with my heroes, for instance. So my first big one was, I guess, Mike Stern. You know, or, you know what? My first big one was probably Hiram Bullock. That was really early on. Yeah. And I got to play trio with Hiram Bullock and Kenwood Denard, which had been the last Jacob Astorius trio. Yeah, yeah. And that was in 1998 or 99, I think. So maybe I was 18 or 19 years old. So that was a big one. Yeah. And I remember very specifically Hiram showing up to the sound check about 45 minutes before the gig and throwing a piece of paper over like, hey man, you know these tunes? And there was a list of like a lot of tunes and I was like, yeah man, yeah, no problem, no problem. Didn't know, I knew Teen Town, that was on the list. That was all I knew. Oh, and I remember running, this was at Berkeley, and I remember running to the media center and going and listening to all of the songs on the list and trying to learn them as best I could <laughs> and going back for the downbeat 45 or minutes or an hour later. And I had, still have a VHS of that show somewhere that's on my to-do list wow. of like, I want to digitize that and, and put, put some clips out there. And uh, I look super young and I play like I'm super young, but that was a big moment. Trial by fire. Kind of oh thing. yeah, big time. Yeah. Being 19 years old and playing with those guys, you yeah. know. And Well, I mean, so how did, I mean, I don't mean how did you get the call, but how did you get the call? Well, um, okay, so before I moved to the States, I'd play with Ayeto Morera and Flora Purim. I'd, I'd gone and sat in with them at Ronnie Scott's in London. Percussionist there. Yeah, Ayeto, yeah. Brazilian percussionist and his wife Flora Purim, uh, the singer. Um, from Return to Forever Days and Chick Corea yeah. and Ayeto's with Miles Davis and, you know, big lineage of Brazilian jazz in, in, in those two guys. And um, so Flora was really good friends with Kenwood Denard and she said, she was the one who told me you've got to go to America. And then she's like, you should go to Berkeley and try and study there. And when you get to Berkeley, you have to go to Kenwood Denard's office and knock on the door and just, doesn't matter when it is, just go there and tell him I sent you. So I did, and I went to his office, and he was in the middle of a lesson, and I knocked on the door, and he opened it, and he's, I said, oh, um, I'm sorry to interrupt, but Flora Perim told me to come by and say hi, and he kicked the kid out of the lesson, 
and said, okay, we've got to play because she had told him about me or something and, and the kid, his lesson ended a little early that day. Whoever that was, I don't know, uh, maybe you're watching and, and you're really pissed at me still. I'm very sorry. Uh, and we played together and it was instant connection, really a great musical connection and we have a great friendship as yep. well. And he was, he, you know, he called me, he said, hey, Hiram's coming to town. We're going to do this gig at the Berkeley Performance Center. Do you want to do it? Cool. Yeah, <laughs> no kidding. And we did a clinic thing in the, in the daytime, kind of jammed with him a little bit, and then went and played the show that night. And I ended up playing with Hiram on and off for about 10 years after that, yeah, well, which was amazing. Cool. So if you could go back and maybe speak to a young 16, 17-year-old Yannick, is there some advice you would give him? Um, wow. Yeah, be open-minded. I wish I'd started, I wish I was as open-minded then as I am now in everything. I mean, especially musically speaking, but I think in terms of everything, I think I wish I was more open-minded. I was, it, it served me very well at the time in terms of having the motivation to make such a big move to America mm. and to stick it out and to go through not eating once in a while and not having any money and not having any gigs. That really, I had this like complete pig-headedness of I'm going to succeed and I'm going to do this. At the expense of, you know, some friendships and relationships at the, at the time, and I wasn't open-minded enough and was just focused on the music. So maybe I would say to my 16 or 17-year-old self, take it easy, you know, okay. it's all going to happen. Yeah. Uh, you don't want it any less um, if you're not showing it 24 hours a day. Yeah. You can still want it and do other things. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think that's probably what I would say. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and so NYC, uh, sorry, New York is yeah. such a massive hub. Yeah. What was it like kind of breaking into the scene and um, you know, what advice would you give to, to any players breaking into well, the scene? I think wherever you're breaking into a scene now, we are in 2016 right now, is so different from when that we're talking 16 years ago I moved to New York or yeah. more. It's so different. So actually, I wouldn't be able to give any specific advice on how to break into a particular scene, especially in New York. I'm very out of touch. But it, I, I doubt it's changed in terms of having to hang out yeah. and having to know the right people, you know, and, and going to the right gigs and going to the right jam sessions. Yeah. As much as that pained me at times, because I kind of hate I jam mean, sessions. I know I wouldn't have got you know half the gigs I got here if I didn't go out, right? Exactly. Check out bands and exactly. You've got to be around. You, you know? to meet other bass players. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've got to be around. You've got to be known to be reliable yeah. and not to be a jackass or an alcoholic or a drug addict or, you know, whatever, just a you nightmare to be one chance to make a good first Sometimes, yeah, you really do, you know, and, and, and it's very rare that you get a second chance after that if you blow it, you mm. know. So it's, I think no matter where you are, it's about being ready, you know, yeah. and you're never ready, of course, but it's about being as prepared and as ready as you can be. Like, yeah. you did your practice, you, you're getting a sound, you have, you know tunes, yeah. like, you have an ear. And like, I, think, I think people can sense that as well. Like, if you've come and maybe you don't nail it, but they see that you've done, that you've put Absolutely, as much as you can absolutely. You've, you've you know, they, they'll see potential even if the execution yeah, yeah. isn't there. I, I remember reading this thing that Miles Davis said, you know, he could tell, you know, whether a musician was a mu real musician by the way they held their instrument or the way they took it out of the case. Like, there was just a natural thing of yeah. like, oh, this, this guy or girl has been doing this for a while. If it's just a natural thing, you put the instrument on, you sit down and you relax, rather yeah. than being all awkward, and, oh, I don't know how the strap goes, <laughs> yeah, and like, yeah. you know. So, yeah, there's a, there's a lot to it, you know. Yeah. Um, so you've been fairly outspoken in the past about the current state of, you know, digital, digital music business and yep. stuff like that. Um, do you still feel the same way as you did when, you know, that the the dawn of that happened when you started your 
your venture and how do you see it now and going forward? I still feel exactly the same way in terms of how much control uh, modern technology and the internet and, and digitization of music gives the artist. It's empowering. Yeah, it's very empowering. And, and there are also no excuses. You know, if you're not succeeding, now it's your problem. Like, there's no record label, oh, the label just didn't promote my last record, or the yeah. publicist was... There's nobody to blame but Maybe yourself. don't like it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, I think it's amazing because it puts the responsibility to create good art square on the shoulders of the artist, you know? Yeah. And I think that's a really positive thing. Um, and it's something I'm a great fan of. So, yeah, I think it's moving forwards beautifully. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm like, I'm all for it, as you, as you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah cool. Um, is there any bands or artists' current music that you're digging at the moment? Yeah, tons. Um, I mean, the, the last David Bowie record, wow. Wow, man. Tim and Mark and, and, and those guys, and Donnie, Jason, all those guys that played on it, and Ben Manda. Like I know a couple of those guys, not all of them, but they are they always have been amazing musicians and to be to hear them in that context creating that kind of music is it's awesome to, oh, to bring that to the absolutely the and audience. the story of I think it goes that David Bowie went to the 55 bar in New York and saw those guys play and yeah. like it's a hot I think that's beautiful yeah. and you know Tim is one of my Tim LaFave one of my favourite bass players ever so I'm going to try and he's coming here with Tedeschi Trucks and oh months. beautiful yeah. oh man so you get, at all costs get him in this room and, oh. and talk to him man absolutely yeah. and if he needs any motivation to do it I'll call him for you I love that guy and yeah. Mark, of course, as well. We we oh. did that one record together. It only happens only happens once, and he's just yeah. just an, a powerhouse of musicality and and, and positivity. Yeah. So yeah, I you know I really appreciate that yep. that that's happening right now. Um, I love Mike League and Snarky Puppy. Is just awesome. You know, like yeah, how yeah. can you not love that? It's so happy and so positive. So I'm kind of all about that. I mean, there's plenty of dark things I love as well. You know, and realms of classical music that I dive into when I'm feeling suicidal. But you know, like, <laughs> that that lasted very. Hey, sun's out. Don't worry. About exactly. That. Yeah. Exactly. It's you know, it's I'm I'm all about being around positive, high energy music. So yeah, those those are two things. There are probably we could sit here four hours talking about yeah. what I'm listening to. Yeah. But those are two definitely current things. I saw a clip of Becca Stevens with the new Dinner Party for Two, Snarky okay. Puppy thing. Sounds amazing. Yeah. Really, really amazing. So, it always sounds um, amazing. Yeah. yeah. So I'm looking, I just saw a little clip of it on YouTube as you were coming to pick me up to yeah. do this. I was like, oh, I wanna, I'm going to be late. i got to watch that later. So after this is done, I will be watching that. Yeah, for sure. Um, and how does, uh, you know, I find sometimes if I'm really heavily listening to something, it, it comes out in what I'm writing and what I'm playing. Yeah. Do you, do you fi are you conscious of that? Like when you're doing your new album, are you conscious of, all right, I've been, I've been listening to a lot of X, I want that in or yeah. I don't want that in or is it just always open? Uh, it's always open, um, but I will go back and police myself and okay. say, like, I'll go back, oh, that's a little bit too close. You know what I mean? Like, to something I've heard. But then it's, it, at the same time, it, it is something that's very honest. Like, I don't go and take a, somebody's song and think, oh, how can I dissect this and use all these things? It really just does come out in my playing and, and how I hear things. So even if it is close sometimes, I'll leave it because it's absolutely honest, an absolute honest representation of what I'm hearing and feeling at that time. So um, as much as I police myself, I try and stay with the original idea yeah, as fair much as cool. I can, you know. I reckon that's about it. That's, oh, beautiful. Yeah. Awesome, um, 
Do you want to let people know where they can, you know, find you online in the best place to... Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you can always find me at yannickwizdala.com. Of course, that's like the main hub. Uh, if you're looking to, to, to delve into play, taking some bass lessons, it is, of course, videobasslessons.tv. And um, all the music is always at Bandcamp first, my Bandcamp page. So the, the new album, all the other albums, I think this is number eight. As a band, yeah, I, I was like, yeah, cool. I, I counted them all up. I was like, holy crap, has it been eight? Hatefully. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I already have number nine almost ready to go. So um, trying to trying to do a trio record with Dennis Chambers and Tim Miller, which would be really, really fun. So that's that's in the pipeline. But go get the new record before you start thinking about that. Um, and you can get that from the Bandcamp page always. Cool. Amen. Thanks, man. Thank you. My pleasure. Get it. Um, guys, thanks for watching. Um, subscribe if you like what you see, and stay tuned for more interviews and lessons.